Welcome to Stance and Balance, a podcast production of The Man System. I'm your host, Ralph Metzner, and with me today is Tim Geals, Director of Implementation and Governance for The Man System. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, Ralph. It's good to be here. This is a special edition of Stance and Balance, which we are producing as a frequently asked questions sort of a guide for families of children of the Queensland Department of Education. Uh, This is to answer some of the questions about the MANT system as we are uh, beginning to uh, roll it out and implement it in Australia. We'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we live, work, and play. We pay respect to elders and leaders, past, present, and emerging, and encourage their connection to land, sea, and culture. We also recognize those whose ongoing efforts to protect and promote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures will leave a lasting legacy for future elders and leaders. All right, Tim, I'd like to start by um, uh, in a sort of question-and-answer format. We'll start with some questions in a moment, but I wanted to start by mentioning that not only is Tim a valued subject matter expert when it comes to implementing the MANT system across all kinds of organizations and all kinds of cultures, he also has a very unique perspective on the value and the impact of the man system as a father of a special need child himself. And I've had an opportunity to spend time with Tim and his son, Tyler. Uh, I can tell you that while there are special needs involved, there's also a very special bond and uh, a very special father indeed. So welcome, Tim, and thank you for your perspective. Thanks, Ralph. Uh, I think, you know, I am very blessed to have had the man system in my life you know, I have three boys. I have Andrew, Tyler, and Austin. And when Tyler was born, he was diagnosed with Fragile X syndrome. We dealt early on with some self-harming behaviors. He's now almost 16 years old, and now we deal with even more aggression and violence. And I don't know where I would have been as a parent had I not had this system in my life for so many years leading up to it. And that really, you know, most parents don't get that. You know, I don't think you'd ever meet a parent that would describe the experience of parenting as easy. Uh, in the best of cir- in the best of circumstances, it's challenging. But I have to congratulate you um, and commend you on the extent to which you've been able to do what you've done. Thank you very much. Let's start a little bit by talking about just what exactly the MANT system is. Sure. And I get asked all the time, what does MANT stand for? And MANT is really the name of our founder, David MANT, who almost five decades ago started this program. So it's really in honor of uh, the, the founder of the program. The family still owns it. His son owns the business today. And what the MANT system is, is a person-centered, values-based process that really encourages intentional Um, positive interactions with others. It's always about safety. That's what we're about. And what we've tried to do, especially in recent years, is really make sure that we integrate this relational process with our understanding around trauma-informed services and positive behavior interventions and supports. Sometimes you hear that referred to as PBIS. Sometimes in other countries, probably in Australia, it's PBS. Um, But we do that in a way that um, is supporting people, not just their behaviors. And a big part of what we teach is how to prevent, if necessary, de-escalate, and unfortunately, when necessary, intervene in emergency situations. You know, at times people look at the man system and say, oh, you're one of those restraint companies. And, and I like to point out, we are not a vendor of restraint training. We want to really provide culture training around safety for everybody. And so for every hour that we're spending teaching restraint, 
we're spending two to three hours teaching how to prevent and add additional hours of that into the de-escalation and the trauma-informed and the positive behavior support. You know, ultimately at the MANT system, we want to teach people how to effectively manage a potential negative or even dangerous situation by first calming ourselves and our own emotional response. We all know that it's really hard to do that at times. It's real easy to react. It's really hard to respond. We want to manage our own behavior before we want to work with that person in a more positive way. So we want to empower train staff to demonstrate social and emotional maturity in the face of sometimes adversity to the students that are under their charge. You know, I, I think I'd probably point something out there, Tim. The We not only focus on the behaviors, as you mentioned, but also the person and understanding yeah. that the behaviors that we see that we may find troublesome or that we feel are in need of management, um, they are a, a product of culture, either yeah. the culture at large or the culture of the organization. They're also a product of, of um, experience, uh, whether that's the experience of the individual, even if it's traumatic experience, or the experience together of, of the people who are, were, whose relationships we're trying to strengthen. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as, a, um, as a training program that is built on uh, good principles of learning and development, uh, the Manton system has a number of learning objectives built into it, but maybe you can talk about what the overall goal of the Manton system is. Yeah, absolutely, because simply put, the goal of the Manton system is to create safe environments. Those safe environments where people can live, they can learn, they can work, they can play, all of that is around safety. We believe that all people, no matter who they are, no matter what a diagnosis or label they carry, they have a right to dignity, respect, and the ability to live and interact in safe places. And so the Mance system places a really strong emphasis on helping people understand that safety is much more than physical safety. Again, the mindset goes to that physical stuff, but it's more about the psychological safety, the emotional safety, social safety, and cultural safeties that people feel and how they respond to that before it ever gets to something around physical safety. You know, I, I mentioned this earlier, but being around this system now myself for 35 years, I consistently have seen that goal achieved, whether that's in organizations that I was personally a part of in my early career as direct care staff or eventually into a leadership administrative position, or whether it's now been the last 21 years working for the company with, you know, various forms, various types of, you know, organizations Manta's used in, whether it's school systems, developmental disabilities, mental health, education, uh, hospital care, you know, it is about safety. And that really became true for me, Ralph, 16 years ago with Tyler's diagnosis, when all of a sudden I had to go from teaching this stuff, instructing it, helping others to understand it, but, you know, really at that point, not having to deal with it daily to now I have to deal with it daily in my own home uh, with Tyler and his aggression and at times towards himself, his aggression towards others. And the tools that are presented in the MANT system, um, again, have not only helped me professionally, but they help me as a parent. They help me manage me before I try to work with this son who, again, I can't change his diagnosis. Teacher, teach thyself. There you go. Um, most training programs rely on um, allegories or um, analogs of some sort, which we often refer to as, as models. So it's a good way of looking at um, the overall structure of a training program to begin to understand what some of those models are. So maybe you can tell us 
what kind of training models we're using? Sure. Um, there are many models used in MANT, and there's three that we really, really focus on immediately in our first chapter on building healthy relationships. They are Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, RADAR, which stands for Recognize, Assess, Decide, Act, and Review, and then the Crisis Cycle Model, which at times I refer to as our bread and butter model. It's because everything kind of fits in there, where we look at where people are at neurologically, where they're at in their own crisis cycle, and how do we interact with them um, from that. The other models that we use, we use uh, Dr. Siegel's hand model of the brain. It's a real simple model that we use to help staff better understand where people are at and how people are at times what we refer to flipping their lid, uh, where they're not really in a good place to listen and communicate. We use the Moray model of the four walls of the house that comes from the New Zealand uh, region. We have a SOTAS model that comes out of the internationally known Boys Town model that we've been blessed to be able to use with their permission. You know, and so we want to take all these things and make sure that they are a part of what we're teaching. The other thing is that all of these are integrated into and around evidence-based practices of positive behavior support and trauma-informed services. Again, two major things that have been proven to be evidence-based now for a lot of years. So a lot of these models are uh, the things that support the learning objectives of the MAN system. Again, under that umbrella you talked about earlier of understanding um, you know, behavior as being more broadly based and respecting human beings. Uh, but I think it's worth pointing out that the positive behavior support and the trauma-informed services uh, really do provide an awful lot of the foundation of the program. Absolutely. Um, you started off a little earlier by talking about uh, restraint, uh, and I think we can uh, more broadly get away from just that term sure. and begin to talk about um, restrictive practices in general because they can involve more than restraints. So maybe you can uh, tell us uh, at that broad level what are restrictive practices. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we look at things through our lens, you know, we are as a system on five different continents now. And I think as you look at it around the world, at least in the U.S. system, it is around typically the idea of restraint and seclusion. Um, but when you look at it in terms of a restrictive practice, and we get this when we're doing our work in England and the, in, uh, in Australia, um, it's much more than that. It's broader than that. And so... I want to look at, as it's laid out in the Queensland Department of Education's procedure restrictive practices, oftentimes referred to um, internally as RP, where restrictive practices actually include seclusion, containment, physical, mechanical, or chemical restraint. It could be part of a clinical holding uh, thing that needs to be done. The other thing is, as it goes broader in, anything that we're really doing that restricts the freedom of anybody and could be actually at times harmful if overdone. And so when you look at this, um, it's only permitted when it's reasonable in all circumstances. And that's including what is known about the student, their specific issues of that day, um, where there may be no less restrictive measure available to respond to the behavior in the circumstances that may be threatening their self or somebody else. Uh, when you paint the picture that broadly, Tim, it, it seems as though you're describing a restrictive practice almost as a philosophy about the way we deal with people. Yeah, it truly is. Um, obviously, uh, there have been restrictive practices around as long as people have been charged or in charge of caring for other people. Um, 
we must by now have some research uh, that tells us about restrictive practices. Yeah, there really has been. And again, we, you know, we can go way back to the stuff that most people think of when we talk about behavior modification and behavior management. We think of things like Skinner and Pavlov and those. But, you know, what we've seen here and really for the good as a parent of a child with special needs, I'm really excited about the research that's been being done around the world around it. Specifically to Australia, in 2019, we have the Queensland Human Rights Act of 2019 legislation. We also have the Disability Royal Commission and research and advocacy initiatives from scholars such as Kevin Ann Huckshorn, who laid out really the cornerstone for the development of the Department of Education's procedure restrictive practices. You know, the implementation goal for the department is to promote really a high quality inclusive education in safe, supportive and disciplined school environments where all students, staff, visitors, anybody around the school and a part of the school can feel safe, secure and respected. It fits in really well with the MANT philosophy overall. The procedure also prescribes the circumstances in which restrictive practices might be permitted to be used in state schools. It talks about reporting, notification, which is huge as a parent for me, the oversight of the obligations of the state school personnel. It also looks at the obligations of the principals and the staff to proactively respond uh, to an at-risk student whose behaviors uh, may be to try to avoid. And, you know, what we're trying to do is getting pretty proactive in that. And our goal is to reduce those restrictive practices, though they may need to be needed at times to keep people safe. The goal is ultimately to get away from it. And so when you look at the procedure restrictive practices, it is ultimately based on the practice principles of regard for human rights, again, coming out of the Queensland Human Rights Act of 2019, safeguarding students and staff. We wanna have transparency and accountability and the consultation around positive behavior support. When you look at restrictive practices more broadly that way, as, as you are, as something almost that's a, ph a philosophy, if you will, uh, and also a potentially a restriction or a violation even of a person's human rights, it, it may seem obvious about why we would want to reduce the use of restricted practices. But why don't you address that question for us directly? Why do we want to reduce the use of restrictive practices? I think there's a strong agreement. If you look at it across professionals and advocacy groups, that the use of restrictive practices can be harmful. Ultimately, it breaches human rights. It compromises the therapeutic relationship it breaks the trust between, in this case, education providers and those who experience restrictive practices. You know, for years, the MANT system's goal has been around forwarding the ideas associated with positive behavior support so that people can feel an increase in their quality of life. Increasing quality of life comes when we have less restrictive practices, and that's not only for the students, but it's also for the educators and the families alike. There's also a great deal of research that tells us that uh, about the value of positive versus negative reinforcement, and I think we can make a pretty clear case here that restraint or restrictive practices, rather, are quite obviously a form of negative reinforcement, any form yeah. that it might take. So if we can look at a subset then of restrictive practices, a very specific subset, uh, and that would be restraint. And the question is, with all that we've had to say here about uh, the research around restrictive practices and the reasons not to do it, what is restraint and why do we need it? 
Yeah, it's interesting because in the last few years, especially as I've gotten more and more involved with advocacy groups as a parent, and as I've gone out and have been able to speak at conferences and international conferences, and people find out what I do for a living, sometimes they're like, well, how can you do that? You know, we shouldn't have any types of restraints, you know, because that is ultimately the goal. But, you know, our system is set up to try whenever possible to use the least restrictive interactions possible. It's in order to really try to keep people from hurting themselves or hurting others. And the man system only teaches physical restraint. I mentioned all those other types of restraint. We only really focus on physical restraint because we feel that um, it doesn't have to be something that's done in a real long time. And so the way we define physical restraint is that it is limiting and redirecting but not immobilizing a person's movements to protect themselves or others from harm. It's the last resort. But sometimes, Ralph, it's necessary to keep people safe as well as those who are living and working alongside that person. Tim, you've made a very compelling case here uh, by talking about the research and also some of the sort of collateral effects of what, what, rest, what restraint can, can do or rather restrictive practices. I think it's reasonable to ask you then, um, knowing what we know about the uh, downside to it, why, do we, why does the man system teach restraint. Yeah. Well, we feel that it's better to teach appropriate physical restraint skills rather than to not teach staff anything at all and have them at that time resort to an inappropriate physical interaction due to their own anger, their own frustration, their desperation, their fear. We encourage and teach a graded system of alternatives. We don't start at restraint. And that philosophy is a big part of the entire Mant system. And it's based, again, back on those principles that all people have the right to be treated with unconditional dignity and respect. And we especially want to put that in play when we are using physical restraint. In my own world, I want Tyler's educators who work with him to have some sort of training to help him keep him safe, whether that's him trying to hurt himself or, heaven forbid, him trying to hurt another student in his classroom or one of the teachers. And, and so it's true when it comes to him, you know, overall, I want people trained how to work with them. If they're going to have to put their hands on him to protect him, then they should know how to put their hands on him in a safe way to protect him that isn't going to cause him harm in the things they're doing to try to restrict him from hurting himself or others. One of the things that's also really important to me uh, that we do at the Mance system is that all of our physical skills are independently evaluated. So it's not just a group of people who've been doing this for a long time coming up with it. But we have everything independently outside evaluated by a guy by the name of Dr. Chris Van Ee, who's been doing this since 2001, to make sure that what we're using is as safe for the people who it's being done on as the people who are doing it. And for me as a parent, I cannot love that enough. It's constantly evaluated to continue to look at, is it still safe to do? You know, that's, that's ultimately what we want, safety. What alternatives should be used before physical restraint is used? Yeah. We have so many non-physical things that we can do that, you know, start with prevention, go into de-escalation. We get into the way we communicate both non-verbally and verbally. But we also have physical alternatives that we can use prior to physical restraint. So it's built around what I mentioned earlier, that gradual and graded system of alternatives, meaning we start low. 
really low-level stuff, things that don't even involve talking to a person. It may just be my nonverbal communication with that person. Then it goes to verbal alternatives that help us communicate in a way that doesn't cause more escalation to the person. And then we may have to do things that get physical, but we don't have to necessarily need to restrain. Maybe we need to do a slight escort of that person, or maybe we're just avoiding and redirecting them as they try to harm themselves or others. You know, my own son, Tyler, who I mentioned a couple times, his behaviors of concern in regard to trying to hurt himself or others. And we seldom have had to utilize restraint in his world um, because we have had other things that we can do. Now, there's things that we've had to use restraint for that we couldn't avoid. Things like blood draws, which is more of a medical hold. Um, early on with haircuts, we had to restrain him for the front side so he wouldn't get a scissors in his eye. But then we let go. Again, it was the least restrictive necessary for his safety and the safety of the people around. And so there's so many non-physical and physical things that we can do to get them to a safe place that don't involve physical restraint. There is going to be risk associated with um, any sort of restraint. So the question is, just how safe is it? You know, we say in the man system, there is no such thing as a safe restraint. You know, and it seems a little hypocritical when we say that, knowing that, and yet we teach that. But we want to be honest that you can do everything right, and sometimes there's going to be sometimes harm done. Um, so we know that there are unknown risks sometimes associated when someone's restrained, medical issues that we are not aware of, and because of the restraint, it causes that bad heart or that valve to have an issue. However, we've gone to great lengths to ensure that our restraints are as safe as possible, that when they're used, they're being used only because the person is going to hurt themselves or somebody else. It means also that we follow a philosophy that believes everyone has the right to equal safety, meaning the person receiving the restraint and the person performing the restraint are equally evaluated with a design in mind that they're both safe equally. We don't believe that the student has more right to safety than the educator or the educator has more right to safety than the student. So they have an equal right to safety. And the foundation of all our physical skills is built around that. In fact, they haven't changed for almost five decades now. Their early foundation was still around that idea that equal value of safety and worth for people. And so every single technique has been independently evaluated, as I mentioned earlier, by, do by Dr. Chris Van E, who is a PhD level biomechanical and biomedical engineer. And what Dr. Van E does is works closely with us to ensure our techniques are sound uh, for those doing the techniques as well as those who are having those techniques performed upon them. And then our child restraints, because we have a whole set of child restraints that are done for folks that are younger and smaller, those have had extra evaluation done by a gentleman by the name of Dr. Steve Joyce. You know, as mentioned earlier, as a father of a child with challenging behaviors, I think it's important for families to know that these techniques are the very techniques that my own child's school is trained in and utilizes. I would not provide any family with something I would not allow on my own child when it's necessary. And when David Mant started this program way back in the mid-1970s, that was his original idea. Would I allow these things to be done to my own family members? Well, over the last few years, some of us who have now worked for the company have had our own family members that these things need to be done with. And I have to think about that. You know, when we're 
actually designing a lot of these things, whether it's the child restraints or whether it's adult-based stuff, oftentimes our own children or the children of the employees, small and grown, have been the ones that we utilize on while we're developing them. We are going to put our kind of money where our mouth is kind of idea that we don't want to, you know, put anybody's family member at risk if we wouldn't put our own through that own, that own, you know, that same rigor. And so before we ever send it off to Dr. Van E, we've tried this on each other. We've tried it on our family members and we feel like if we could do it on our own people, we could allow it to be done on others. I guess if I could uh, summarize uh, to sort of an, an equation about why we teach physical restraints, these techniques, um, we teach them to only be used when the risk of the behavior is greater than the risk of the restraint. We acknowledge risk in both cases, but when one exceeds the other, that's when we use these tools. Absolutely correct. I guess I want to close out by kind of coming back to where we started with the overall goal of the Manton system and give you a chance to comment on that. These behaviors we've been talking about that are in need of de-escalation, uh, potentially to head off bigger problems, they're very specific. You know, they, they may seem like very small moments, but if they're managed incorrectly, they have the potential to profoundly impact that broader culture that we've been talking about in the organization. So I'm just wondering if you can comment upon the ways that you've seen proper management of these behaviors impact the culture of an organization at large? My background was not education. It was working with folks who had acquired a traumatic brain injury. And I got the opportunity to go in and help an organization really struggling with high levels of restraint. They were doing almost 240 restrictive practices a month when we came in and did uh, this takeover of that organization. And, and they still use MANT today. So this is, you know, mid-90s. And today we're looking at 20-some years later that they still use the program. When I was there, they had 27 consumers that were being served. Today they've got 36 uh, residential consumers. They have folks that come in for day programming. And they have a respite care program of over 100 children. Today they average about three a month. And that philosophical change can much of that can be attributed to the MANT system and the change that we made. Now, there were other programs we had to put in place. There were policies and procedures that needed to go with it. But all of them were looked at through the lens of the same philosophy of how do we treat people with dignity and respect and how would we want our own people to be treated. That needle doesn't move immediately, but it starts to move. And as it picks up steam and people buy in and they understand this is just a better way to work with people, it makes that change. Now, I've had the opportunity for 21 years now to be a part of it from that next level up in, in the MANT system. And I have story after story of people who've been able to say, Mance made the huge difference in the quality of life of the people who live here. We're less restrictive. There's less restraints. People want to come and work here more because they're not going to get hurt or beat up by the people in care. Um, they're building healthy relationships. They're you know, proactively engaging with one another. And when people have a quality of life and that quality of life grows, there's less need to do restraint. And so it is a program that... If it didn't work, we, we wouldn't be around 50 years later, almost 50 years later. But because of the growth, most of our growth has happened by word of mouth because people have found that when you 
have this philosophy, and David didn't come up with the idea of treating people right. It's been around for thousands and thousands of years, but he just packaged it in a way that's simpler and easier for people to understand and to be trained in. And when we do that, it literally saves people's lives. When you are not forcing people onto the ground, when you're not pinning people up against a surface out of your own anger and your own frustration, because we've learned how to manage that, it makes all the difference in the world in our therapeutic relationships. Uh, Tim, have you got any final thoughts? I do believe in the program. If I didn't, I wouldn't have been around it for 35 years. And so I would say, Ralph, we're, we're a very transparent organization. And if anybody listening to this podcast wants to learn more, they can really reach out to us at the Mance system uh, and, and get those answers. If they want to see something, we've been able to get on Zoom calls and show what Mant is and, and talk about what Mant isn't. And so uh, the relationship with us doesn't end on, you know, between us and the vendor. It, it goes beyond into all the stakeholders, and that includes all the families listening. If they have more questions, they can go to our info at mantsystem.com and, and uh, ask those questions. We want to make sure that people are confident and comfortable in the way that um, educators are being trained to, to work with their, their kids. Tim, I can't thank you enough, not only for your professionalism, but also your personal perspective that you shared today. Thank you, Ralph. I would just close out by encouraging people to, as Tim said, reach out directly to the MAN system if you have any other questions. We're very excited to be able to serve and look forward to working with all of you in the future. This has been Stance and Balance. I'm Ralph Metzner.